Thank you very much for inviting me. And I, I, I'm sorry, got my back to some people. I'll try to turn around occasionally, and, and if you don't hear me, please let me know. Um, I thought it was really strange when I got an invitation to speak here because uh, I thought this was too esoteric of a topic for, uh, for, for the study of journalism. But the more I focused on it, the more I realized actually you were way ahead of me and that this is uh, quite relevant to journalism, I hope, and I hope I can make that clear. Um, the, um, the, I'm going to speak about the book, but I, I'm going to also talk to you about the research project we've been doing and um, uh, that led to the book. The book is uh, Worldwide Research, Shaping the Sciences and Humanities, and uh, I co-edited it with uh, Paul Jeffries, who's a physicist who worked with Tim Berners-Lee Tim Berners and uh, his team at, um, at CERN. And so the idea that a social scientist and a physicist could work together on a project, that illustrates the sort of complexity and the kinds of co collaboration that are required to sort of understand this entire area. Um, I wanted... Um, Exactly. I mean, I thought uh, I thought you were interested in the fifth estate because I've been doing research on the fifth estate that complements the press and, and uh, the fourth estate. But uh, and so I was uh, thought, oh my gosh, why would you be interested in worldwide research? But uh, but I I want to how, how many people have already seen Hans Link uh, Link's uh, video? So one or two or some some of you have. I'll show just a short snippet because I think it's absolutely great. And uh, it illustrates the potential power of, of visualization and one aspect of, of uh, uh, e-research. And then I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully come together here. Uh, so where was this cursor? Yeah. Come. This is at the Technology, Entertainment, and Design Conference years ago. About 10 years ago, I took on the task to teach global development to Swedish undergraduate students. That was after having spent about 20 years together with African institutions studying hunger in Africa. So I was sort of expected to know a little about the world. And I started in our medical university, Karolinska Institute, an undergraduate course called Global Health. But when you get that opportunity, you get a little nervous. I thought, these students coming to us actually have the highest grade you can get in Swedish college system. So I thought, maybe they know everything I'm going to teach them about. So I did a pretest when they came. And one of the questions from which I learned a lot was this one. Which country has the highest child mortality of these five pairs? And I put them together so that in each pair of country, one has twice the child mortality of the other. And this means that um, it's much bigger the difference than the uncertainty of the data. I won't put you at a test here, but it's Turkey, which is highest there, Poland, Russia, Pakistan, and South Africa. And these were the results of the Swedish students. I did it so I got the confidence interval, which was pretty narrow, and I got happy, of course, at 1.8 right answer out of five possible. That means that there was a place for a professor of international health and for my course. But one right late night, when I was compiling the report, I really realized my discovery. I have shown that Swedish top students know that 
statistically significantly less about the world than the chimpanzees. <laughs> because the chimpanzee would score half right. If I gave them two bananas with Sri Lanka and Turkey, they would be right, half of the cases. But the students are not there. The problem for me was not ignorance, it was preconceived ideas. I did also an unethical study of the professors of the Karolinska Institute that hands out the Nobel Prize in medicine and they are on par with the chimpanzee there. <laughs> So this is where I realized that there was really a need to communicate because the data of what's happening in the world and the child health of every country is very well aware. So we did this software which displays it like this. Every bubble here is a country. Uh, this country over here is, um, uh, this is uh, China. This is India. The size of the bubble is the population. And on this axis here, I put fertility rate. Because my students, what they said when they looked upon the world, and I asked them, what do you really think about the world? Huh? Well, I first discovered that the textbook was Tintin mainly. Huh? And they said the world is still we and them. And we is Western world, and them is third world. And what do you mean with Western world? I said, well, that's long life in small family. And third world is short life in large family. So this is what I could display here. I put fertility rate here, number of children per woman, one, two, three, four, up to about eight children per woman. We have very good data since 1962, 1960 about, on the size of families in all countries. The error margin is narrow. Here I put life expectancy at birth, from 30 years in some countries up to about 70 years. And 1962, there was really a group of countries here that was industrialized countries, and they had small families and long lives. And these were the developing countries. They had large families and they had relatively short lives. Now what has happened since 1962? We want to see the change. Are the students right? It's still two types of countries? Or have these developing countries got smaller families and they live here? Or have they got longer lives and live up there? Let's see, we stopped the world. And this is all UN statistics that has been available. Here we go, can you see there? It's China, they're moving, they're getting better health, they're improving there, all the green, Latin American countries, they are moving towards smaller families. The yellow ones here are the Arabic countries and they get larger families, but they, no, longer life, but not larger families. The Africans are the green down here, they still remain here. This is India, Indonesia is moving on pretty fast. And in the 80s here, you have Bangladesh still among the African countries there, but not Bangladesh, it's a miracle that happens in the 80s. The imams start to promote family planning and they move up into that corner. And in 90s, we have the terrible HIV epidemic that takes down the life expectancy of the African countries and all the rest of the world moves up into the corner where we have long lives and small family and we have a completely new world. <laughs> Let me make a comparison directly between United States of America and Vietnam. 1964. America had small families and long life. Vietnam had large families and short lives. And this is what happens. The data during the war indicate that even with all the death, there was an improvement of life expectancy. By the end of the year, the family planning started in Vietnam and they went for smaller families. And the United States up there is getting for longer life, keeping family size. And in the 80s now, they give up communist planning and they go for market economy and it moves faster even than social life and today we have in Vietnam the same 
life expectancy and the same family size here in Vietnam, 19, 2003, as in the United States, 1974, by the end of the war. I think we all, if we don't look in the data, we underestimate the tremendous change in Asia, which was in social change before we saw the economical change. So let's move over to another. We can, uh, if, if, if you Google uh, Ted and Rosling, you, you can see the entire talk. It's absolutely incredible. But it, it shows you the degree to which um, data, which is increasingly available, uh, this, uh, fertility rates and so forth and uh, population characteristics, increasingly available to almost anyone. And, the, and using visualization software and analytical approaches, you can show things that might not be visible or uh, uh, easy to explain to students, and, and, uh, but in a very meaningful way, in a powerful way to convey an idea. And um, that's just one phase of the research project. So that, that's displaying and communicating the data. But in every single phase of research, uh, from putting together collaboration to uh, 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 to brainstorming uh, uh, your project ideas, to uh, doing literature reviews, to doing the data analysis itself and data collection. Uh, there are all sorts of new approaches to using advanced web and internet and computational technologies to actually enable you to do things that you couldn't have done before and in, in more meaningful ways. So this is what we were aiming to do with the uh, e-social sciences. We had a project that began in 2005, and we were a node within a larger ESRC research program on e-social sciences. Most of the nodes were about focusing on how do you develop applications of e-social science. So how can you do a visualization like this? Can you develop the software, hardware, and so forth to do e-science? And then we were uh, different. Uh, our node, or our project, was focused on understanding what factors are shaping the development and promotion and, and success of this technology, and what implications will it have for the sciences and humanities. And the book is about, ultimately, the book is trying to explain how, how e-research is changing the way we go about doing the sciences and humanities and actually the outcome of that work, uh, such as on the quality of research. Um, that project is still going on, and we'll finish in 2011 or 12, and uh, with luck, maybe continue after that. Um, but what we wanted to do is uh, not focus, most of the work in this area is focused on the new technology and the new software that's available and so forth. We wanted to try to understand this as a social innovation. Um, talk about this in a moment, but essentially every time you take, technology defines how we do things. And if we change the technology of research, we change the way we go about doing research. And we actually, uh, if we change the way we handle data, the way we display data, the way we collect and, and archive data, we can bump into all sorts of ethical, legal, and institutional issues around that. So we tried to understand not just the technology, but how, what kinds of ethical issues it raises, what, kind, uh, what about data protection, legal issues are surrounding it, and, um, and also to look at this across the social sciences. It's very different in archiving ancient manuscripts than in 
archiving data about the health practice, health health of individuals. So data about people versus things versus um, uh, manuscripts versus uh, living organisms and so forth. It's um, it's quite a quite diverse, and so it's very hard to characterize the e-sciences or e-research generally. Um, and also to identify the sets of actors involved and, and the social dynamics behind them. It usually, if you talk to computer, most of this is dominated by computer scientists and engineers. And so we were entering it as social scientists. scientists. And mainly the computer scientists, um, I'm sorry if, if I'm insulting anybody here, but it's not an insult, but they would view the social issues as barriers. Okay? <laughs> um, Somehow, uh, social issues like ethics and privacy and, and uh, uh, consent and so forth are just barriers to research. How do we fix? How do we get, get through this so that we can do these neat things? And, uh, and I, I'm sympathetic with them, but I also am pointing out that you know, government's pouring a lot of money into research in this area. So, I mean, the social issues, political, social factors are actually part of the impetus behind these moves. It's not just a barrier. Actually, much of the support and promotion and development of this is government-supported, policy-relevant, uh, because this is viewed as, as strategic in terms of the competitive position of the universities and, and researchers across, across nationally. Uh, we put together a, a team that's quite multidisciplinary. We have uh, people from philosophy, from science and technology studies, law, uh, social studies, uh, uh, economics, and so forth. I won't go through them, but I, uh, we have, uh, it's not, anyway, we, it, quite a project my, uh, ourselves in terms of just simply managing the, uh, the research. And we, uh, what we did is a series of case studies, what we, we tried to look at individual projects, something like uh, uh, Professor Rustling's uh, work or uh, efforts to simulate or model uh, phenomena in new ways, new collaborative tools, um, embedded sensor networks, and how they use data, collect data. Then we did a series of issue-based studies so that we did studies of particular legal, social, institutional issues like uh, uh, ownership of data when you're sharing across multiple institutions. And then we've tried to do a synthesis of that. But we've employed all sorts of technologies, case studies, issue-based studies, and uh, survey research, and longitudinal ethnographies. And uh, different people have done those. And what we've, they're very difficult, because some of the early research is very, at very early stages. So a lot of the tools and technologies that are being used are um, are just in the very embryonic stages. And uh, so, for example, our initial project was to do more in-depth, uh, very in-depth case studies of, of, of four, to, four to eight studies and uses of, of e-research. We ended up doing far more case studies of, at less depth because we often found we could pretty much figure out what was going on relatively quickly because it was, uh, uh, at a point where uh, there was, it, they were simpler than we thought in terms of exactly understanding how they were using uh, e-research, the kinds of barriers that they ran into, the, the reasons and motivations behind the projects. 
One of the things, uh, you hear this, this is discussed as e-science, as e-research, as e-infrastructure, cyber infrastructures. It's a mind-boggling exercise in trying to figure out what people are talking about. Uh, and I've made the situation worse by inventing my own term, which is uh, research-centered computational networks. So I think almost all of this, um, I've tried to, I've tried to, to coin a term that, that actually uh, embeds most of the developments. By, I mean research-centered because like the internet is used for sending email and, to your family, but it can also be research-focused. You can also use in the CERN project, in the ATLAS project at CERN, they use email and attachments to email as a key factor in collaboration within the uh, ATLAS project. And in that case, email and, and uh, just regular internet communications became a research-centered network. Um, computational, because most of these systems involve some type of computation. Um, uh, for example, there have been systems where actually uh, a lot of the projects are based upon much greater computing capacity than ever before used. So there have been systems which enable people to use the unused portion of screensavers around the world to use to have computational capacity to do to compute things that might take too long on other networks. Um, so the use of all sorts of uh, grid-based uh, networked um, computers uh, to do have greater computational capacity to work with larger databases, larger data sets, do faster calculations, and so forth. Uh, and they all, they all tend to be research-centered computational networks. So we looked at the social shaping, what factors are shaping them, and what implications they have. Um, we've I'll, I won't uh, go over these uh, in detail, but I mean, we, we found that the sets of issues range quite widely. The ethical issues are immense uh, because, um, uh, and then we often found that some of the e-research projects, uh, especially in the health area, moved because they realized that they could do something. They could, for example, um, uh, capture data about people and, uh, uh, well, there's a, there was a project at, uh, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the E-Diamond project here at Oxford, but it was a project that would capture the, uh, uh, visual uh, imaging, create images of mammograms in order to collect them across England and then compare them over time so that they could actually study um, uh, study uh, breast cancer in ways that could never have been done before. But they went on for several years before they realized there was some issue of privacy for, for, for uh, images of, mam uh, of mammograms. So, uh, and, and also who owned these? Does the patient own them? Does the hospital own them? Does the uh, National Health Service own them? All of the above is true. You know, they're all complexities of ownership and and uh, con confidential an anonymity. How do we keep the, uh, these anonymous and um, and informed consent? Did anybody know that these were being used for any other purpose, et cetera? So the legal and ethical issues are immense. Um, uh, into, uh, let's see, the um, uh, social issues are also very interesting in which uh, uh, we found that across every discipline there were different 
cultures of how you treat data so that anybody that you knows that if in sociology people have much stricter codes about anonymity of data keep protecting the subjects of research. Political science, if you're often studying uh, politicians or public figures, there's less of a concern for anonymity. In fact, you, you're, you probably must uh, identify people. Um, so it varies very, very much across disciplines about how you treat data, um, how you treat publication, uh, whether science is, uh, how open science should be, how data is shared, etc. Even when um, disciplinary cultures are often even more pronounced than, than uh, legal and institutional practices. Um, we had a, one of the case studies was uh, uh, I had some qualitative research that was done and I was asked by the ESRC to data archive to turn that qualitative data over to the data archive and I said no because the, the uh, because I had promised confidentiality to, to my respondent. Journalists will understand this. Uh, but no, they said, well, that, no, that's in the, con you know, this is part of the ASRC rules that any, any data that we're going to start archiving qualitative data. And you can either, if you, if you, want, if you want to protect the anonymity, you redact the interviews and erase any identity of the, of the people you spoke to. And these were scientists that I had interviewed. And so I said, no, I can't do that because it would be worthless and it would be a totally worthless data set if, I redact, if you didn't know who the people were. And if I gave it to you, it would be a breach of confidentiality. And so, no, I won't give it to you. <laughs> and I was told by the university and others that if I didn't, I would be blacklisted and I would never get another grant from the ESRC. Um, but we insisted not that we would not do this. And finally, the ESRC wrote us, and, or the data archive wrote us and said, we've decided that we do not want your data. <laughs> <laughs> So they blinked, but, but uh, it, it really alerted me to the fact that disciplinary cultures are often overridden by really ridiculous stand, standards that are not sensitive to, to the actual ethical issues involved with particular, so, uh, uh, with particular studies. Um, institutional, uh, we had a huge study. If you look at the institutional design of research, all of the research is usually designed around a single institution. So Oxford University and Oxford University Computing Services is designed to support research conducted here. Once you start doing multi-global research with multiple institutions, it becomes extremely difficult in terms of dealing with ownership, credit, funding, you name it. And so th these kinds of institutional issues were became a, a major contribution of our project. We had Paul David and uh, Michael Spence, a former uh, head of social sciences division here, uh, who worked on uh, trying to develop approaches to dealing with the institutional problems of multi-institutional research. We, took, we talked about that as the soft infrastructures of e-social science or of science, where often um, People think about the technological infrastructures of broadband communications and wiring and so forth. And we were t saying that actually the, some of the softer infrastructures are more important, such as privacy policies, uh, institutional policies that support collaboration, et cetera. So we tried to move that 
that agenda along. Um, we looked at the actors involved, the social shaping of the choices of those actors, and how these issues are reframed. Um, I'd like to, uh, because I think this comes back to, to when we talk about journalism, is that uh, if you think about any technology reconfigures access, and I use this framework for almost every study I do anymore, but certainly for e-research, um, any technology changes how you do things, and it also changes the outcome. But in research, the key, key things you do are distribution, collaboration, observation, uh, collection of information, analysis. This is, I guess you could make complete analogies to journalism. All of these, all of these activities are, are the activities of a journalist as well. If you use new technology, you're often doing these differently. You're using, um, the new technologies change who you can collaborate with and how you collaborate. If you're collaborating electronically around the world and with Skype and other kinds of uh, access grid and technologies, you can actually build research teams that are not necessarily co-located at all. Um, so it changes who you work with. If you, um, and clearly, I suppose, that kind of multinational collaboration of journalists is, is, is equally uh, possible and increasingly feasible. But observation, um, this is perhaps most interesting because the, the use of e-research actually changes not only how you observe, observe objects, but who can observe what and what you can experience. So some of the projects involved uh, in the sciences, for example, everybody in the world looking through one telescope. So one telescope, that uh, radio telescope, can actually be looked at through the internet, all right? So that people can share a particular telescope anywhere they are in the world. They can look through that. Well, and same, similarly for microscopes. So they can invest a huge amount of money in a particular facility, like a microscope, a telescope, uh, uh, and observe things that they couldn't otherwise see, but also who can observe it, it can be linked globally, all right? Um, uh, the, the Hedron Collider, for example, the, the idea that the data from that is gonna be generated and be able to be analyzed from around the world. I mean, this is immense in terms of the fact that you can, with computational technologies and new tech, you can see things you wouldn't otherwise see, but you can also bring people into it to observe that wouldn't otherwise be able to observe it. Um, uh, in the social sciences, for example, using web metrics, where you can all of a sudden, uh, in survey, say survey research or uh, typical studies, you would have more local-based studies. Now you can observe web activity worldwide, okay? And almost anybody can. <laughs> it's survey research. Now you can actually survey anyone in the world. We have a global study going on now, as we're speaking. As we're speaking, so we. We're continually doing more global survey research, more global web studies that would have been impossible without the use of, of newer media. Um, so we can observe things uh, that we could not observe before. Uh, we can combine data, uh, like on the information, it changes what you collect. Social scientists often do sample surveys or samples to, to generate data collections. Now, increasingly, people want to look at everything, okay? Not just a sample, but 
all of the data, all of the population data, all of the NHS data, all the health and public service data, and, and combine those data sets. So that why sample if you've got co the computational capability and so forth to bring in all the data? And the analysis you saw, such as the visualization analyses, it changes the way, what you can conduct and, and also how you distribute that and uh, how people can get access to it. So I think this is, my argument is, uh, many people would argue that this is quite nascent and uh, not dramatically changing scientific practice. And from what I see, this is a really significant change in scientific practices and that uh, something that... Um, is inevitably going to change the quality and, and, uh, and impact of science in a variety of ways. We also looked at the actor. I went to a, a project, uh, a, a workshop on e-science uh, in uh, uh, Australia within the uh, uh, 2005 it was. And there was this diagram of these are the actors involved in e-science. People who are developing grids, the computer scientists, the, re the subject matter researchers, people like ourselves, and then policymakers. And I just, uh, I just thought that was, that was ridiculously oversimplified. And, uh, and if you think about all the actors in this care, there are domain researchers, there are the computer scientists who are working in this area, there's the researchers at the interface, there are some researchers who, who bridge domain researchers and the computer scientists. On and on. There are people who do the coding. There are the grant units within universities. There are the government agencies that are shaping science policy and so forth. And this list is pretty simple itself. But uh, part of what we've done is look at the wide range of actors that are shaping the, the push for e-science e and e-social science. Um, and you can see that these, these are the key decisions, what you observe, what you collect, who you collaborate with, how you distribute data, is it open open or uh, more restricted, what kind of analysis you do. And these are all affected by the uh, really major factors and you know, the technical enablers, if you look at the bottom right, the technical enablers, that's the primary focus of most of the world about e-science is that new technology enables you to collect different things, to observe different things. And uh, what we've tried to do is alert people to the fact that actually what you could collect, what you observe is, is, is dramatically affected by also the economic resources and constraints of nations and research units. Um, we had a colleague uh, in the Worldwide Research Book, who, who, he's a social scientist in China, he said these are uh, Fantastic technologies, but actually we have no social data. <laughs> it would be great to analyze data through this, but we don't have any social science data. And uh, so some of the things you take for granted are just really not always available in every country and so forth. Uh, the institutional disciplinary regulations and codes. You can, uh, the example I gave to you of the disciplinary codes that we thought were important were different from, and they differ across disciplines and universities and cross-nationally. Law and policy, we've got people that are looking at um, data protection law, and I think it's primarily the uncertainty of data protection law is, is immense, and it, uh, it, and it is a, it is a constraint in e-research. 
data protection law and privacy and data protection law, actually in the early days, the whole idea behind data protection was to enable sharing of data, to enable people to get access to data because there'd be clear rules of how you would be able to get data, what, what data you could use, how you would treat it. But there's such ambiguity about data protection law and it's been such, so outstripped by new technology and what you can do with new technology that um, there, there are a lot of ambiguities. So people run into problems that they did not expect. Um, you, every day you hear cases with a Google collecting data uh, uh, through the street view and so forth that, that are pretty unanticipated by the people who put together data protection laws and so forth, the, the capability to do that. Okay, uh, but anyway, that's this sort of the social context that are shaping these decisions that the multiple actors are making about um, e-science. So what we've painted is a picture of a, a wide array of an ecology of actors making decisions about the course of research shaped by a number of, of, of social factors from geography to uh, economic constraints to technical enablers that are shaping the directions of research. They, we think it's probably very unlikely that re research is following some simple logical technical path. It's quite open and quite unpredictable how, how this will evolve. Um, so what we're trying to do is reframe the debate. I, well, what I'm trying to do is I think almost all of the discussion of, of e-research and e-social science is about how can we diffuse this? How can we get rid of the barriers to e-research? How can we promote the uh, uptake of e-research, e-science? And I'm trying to say, well, actually, I don't think that's a worry. This is going to happen. And I think that it will diffuse. It is already diffusing. And I think the key issue will be what difference will it make? For example, to the quality of research, to the, the, to the kinds of research we do. Um, I'm also thinking that it's, it's, we need to not focus on single technological breakthroughs, but on a wider diversity of tools. Um, so um, there tends to be a focus on, what, uh, say, open government data or um, uh, the grid. Uh, the grid was, for a time, the major focus of, of, of work, the idea that um, or now cloud computing is. So there's this effort to sort of, there's this magical technology that's going to drive. And what I've tried to do is that there's a wide diversity of, of, of research-centered uh, computational network technologies. And we need to look at those all across a variety of, a variety of decisions in the research cycle. Um, and to look empirically, not just take a technological logic that technology is going to make us able to look at more powerfully at technology, at, at social behavior, and lead to improved research. Um, we have to actually look empirically to see if, if, if what is actually happening with research. Um, it could well be that, 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 that e-science distances people from research or, or changes the way we do research in ways that undermine the quality of research. Um, and, and then look and really look at how different peoples are, are reconfiguring access. Uh, so we could talk about this in terms of the quality of research or the quality of journalism. 
But this is one example of the kind of issue I think we need to start talking about right away in terms of um, the quality of um, the quality of research. Take, for instance, um, uh, the degree to which well, the, the degree to which um, research may lead you to um, move away from field work to sitting behind a computer. I mean, there's a, there's a degree in which I think there's a common disease in academia, which is that we spend more time behind a computer screen than talking to people or interviewing subjects in the field. So instead of being in the field, you're behind your computer. Well, in a way, e-research enables you to observe things like the web metrics, enables you to analyze who the uh, sites and the structures of links around the world. and um, and we can get more access to more data online, but will more of our observation be more mediated and there will we be less close to actually having a personal feel for what's going on in the field? Will we be distancing ourselves from real phenomena? So you can, we try, we played around with this kind of a diagram to simplify things, but if you look at, for example, interviews with people or direct field research is, is very direct and small scale. Um, we can move into very large-scale uh, direct observation, say with web metrics, so we can actually see uh, web activity around the world, but at a scale that it's almost impossible to have a real sense of what um, what is going on at the individual level. But if you move interviews to mediated interviews, and, and for example, uh, doing web-based surveys, for example, you'll be more and more potentially distanced from actually doing the personal interview or doing uh, even uh, having field researchers moving into the field. So are we creating a situation where we're mediating more and more of the research and we're distancing ourselves from real social phenomena? Now this is in the social sciences, but it could be in any field. It could be that uh, people who study ancient manuscripts can now get access to ancient manuscripts from anywhere in the world that they never would have been able to see before unless they traveled to the Bodleian or what have you, but now they can see, see them from anywhere in the world, and they may be more likely to travel to the Bodleian. But are they? Is that the, what is the case? Okay. Um, so what we think is that we should move away from the diffusion of e-research and the diffusion of e-science to how is it impacting the quality of science. And I thought then, therefore, you would... I used to have an IBM... Uh, okay, if we could watch this. This, is, um, this moves what I've been discussing into journalism. Can we get this in to take data and be able to understand it, to process it, extract value from it, visualize it, and communicate it, that's going to be a hugely important skill in the next decades. Because now we really do have essentially free and ubiquitous data. And it basically creates a complementary scarce resource, which is our ability to use this data effectively. The amount and the access to different kinds of data from different places is exploding and is really new. Everything from data.gov, where you have the federal government that's actually releasing data in a fairly raw 
raw format and really isn't trying to spin it in any kind of way. They're just they're saying these are the numbers, do with them what you will. That's that's really interesting. We're trying to figure out ways to build interesting things around it. It's obvious that we have a, a significant data problem and that's simply not going away. You know, we can run numbers about it, we can throw heavy statistics at it, we can do data mining, we can do all these other things, but that doesn't cross over to the you know the human side of that where things get a lot more interesting. So in media, I'd say we're always um, excited to see what the New York Times is up to. They are pushing the envelope. It's great to see that um, they are actually putting out some visualizations that are quite sophisticated that we can see. You know, they trace back all the way to academia. I mean, charts are data visualization. Um, so we've been doing data visualization and many other people have been doing it for a long time. What we're doing now and, and the way that you know data visualization as a uh, discipline how, you know that's kind of evolving and growing um, it's a little bit different from what we've been doing in the past. I was very impressed when they had the Voronoi uh, diagram of all the little pieces of the economy. The data by nature is hierarchical, right? And so, like, you have, like, you know, food and then meat and then types of meat. It's also things you can relate to, like, as opposed to inflation being a abstract, weird concept. Just by the structure of the data, it was pretty clear that, you know, a tree map would be a good solution. And, and I, you know, in May, there's well-popular software now to, to make square tree maps. Um, and it seems sort of unfriendly and unsatisfying. Um, and so I just started looking around for people who have uh, who have done different things. Done, um, and uh, Michael Balser, he was at the time, he was doing, I think, a postdoc in Germany, and that was what his research was about. So I reached out to him for some help. Amanda, I forget who, maybe it was, just, it was a, someone who was commenting on a blog or a blogger who said that she was the queen of InfoViz, which is kind of hilarious and, and I think also true. Amanda studied statistics in college um, and she's brought uh, both a little bit more of a focus on data to the department and also just some sort of amazing ability to process data. You know, I wasn't going to be a good academic researcher, it was just... And I started thinking, like, well, what, what do I want to do? And so I just started applying to just, like, random things to see, like, the thought was, like, what am I disappointed at being rejected by, right? And one of them, um, I just sent off a packet to be the, the graphics intern at the New York Times. You know, I, I think that the recent piece that she did showing the history of four-year deficit projections was really smart. My belief is it was her original idea to do that, to create what she's called the porcupine chart. The dominant line in this figure is, is what the deficit, the federal deficit, actually was. And then at different points in time, when the projections were made, you know, she has created a line that shows what the projection was. And usually you see, I think she said in 70% of the cases, the projection was much more optimistic than where the deficit actually went. And you can see that in the chart. It's an important subject, and it's an interesting way to add this historical context. One of the things that visualization is very helpful for in many cases is putting data in context. So I see a, you know, a spike in government expenditures in the 90s and what happened, and you see, well, this is also when you know, tax revenue spiked due to a good economy, like those types of descriptive annotations, which aren't you know, present within the spending data itself, are critical to getting you know, an appropriate understanding of what happened. More recently, Amanda made a piece that let readers find different unemployment rates for different kinds of people. 
probably every newspaper in America has run the unemployment rate chart showing the unemployment rate uh, taking up to 10%, you can actually see that you know the unemployment rate varies incredibly uh, between different groups. So if you are a college-educated white woman between the ages of 25 and 44, the unemployment rate for that group is uh, I think about 3.5%, where if you're a uh, young black male that's never graduated from high school, um, the unemployment rate is almost 50%. I mean, for me, I think the highest goal is to, you know, sort of change what you think about the world or to make, take something you already know and to make you think about it again for the first time. Well, I would love to be able to hire you know, a statistician or a computer assistant reporter. We have some open positions now, and I would love for those positions to be geared towards somebody that had that skill set. Here's what the data is, and here's how we would want to shape this story based on this data. So we've changed the focus of our team to concentrate more on database journalism. We've brought in people with data specialisms. We've brought in people who know GIS software and know how to work spreadsheets better than most designers do in order to try and up our game in that particular level. So we started about a year ago, um, and we're in the process now of getting a data based journalist in place. We've done anything from um, the stimulus tracker, which was sort of a data-heavy project that we did in partnership with Onvia, to is gathering data about all of the um, contracts, all the government contracts that are being um, put out as a result of the stimulus money that's coming down. We mapped all of that data to locations and um, enabled people to sort through it and filter it by industry and, and that kind of thing. And the ultimate goal is to combine that kind of data with things like who voted for the stimulus and who didn't vote for it. So in the past year, we've done a visualization on crash data, which was our journalists did a huge project in trying to get all fatalities across the UK from crashes. Uh, this data doesn't exist anywhere else, so it was quite a challenge to get hold of it. And then we've mapped it, we've charted it, to see if there's any stories, any trends that come out of it, see if there's any black spots. We've got an ongoing um, Afghan casualties database and Iraq casualties database, which is plotting the, the deaths in the various war zones and the demographics of the people involved, uh, which is quite a, it's a very emotional subject for people. I think we're still in an early stage. I think a lot of the, you know, both artists and journalists are still very much exploring what the capabilities of data visualization are uh, for communicating both the context and the narrative elements of a story. We've got similar challenges to other people. You know, it's how do you get the story from the data? It's how do you really interrogate that data and show it to the audience in the best way when you just put a huge amount of data up there and let people interrogate it? We've used and tested that to see how our audience react to it. On the whole, they like it, but they want more of a story there. They want to see what's the important thing. They want to know. They want to know why they want to look at it. Right now, it's it, very much what we do is is a lot of just showing you the data and letting you draw your own conclusions, which is great to some extent but it also requests or requires a lot of effort on the part of a user and if a user gets frustrated then or it's just too much and they're like why am i doing this you know it's not that's not serving the purpose that we wanted to serve yeah i do think that there editing is a huge 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 important thing right like and they and i really like reject sort of 
there's a web template of like you know you mock up your structure and then you like you know fill in the holes right but I think it's really important to look at your data first and to decide what's you know like to throw some of it away so we did this amazing really beautiful visualization data visualization of the fortune 500 you know these yellow circles with the um, of showing the profit and uh, the revenue of, the, of all the companies with the tickers and really beautiful flower but it was no story to it. It's interesting. I've struggled, I think, online with the data that's with having a, any kind of a narrative, not even a non-linear narrative, but any kind of a narrative at all. Like, I think of, like, that time, the tiniest graphic, right, you know, where we write one sentence about what you're seeing when you click on every button, right, you know, like, and, you know, those sentences are, they're fine, they're adequate, but there's no real, like, they don't add to anything greater, they don't, like, build on each other, like, and part of the reason for that is because it's hard to do when you don't know, you know, when the whole point of it is, like, click whatever button you want. I think that data visualization is, is becoming a phrase that is doesn't mean as much as it should do. Uh, all it means is looking at numbers, uh, which is what a lot of information graphics are, as far as I'm concerned. Now it seems that data visualization means visualizing a whole lot of data. And that's given rise to a trend that I think is damaging. Because you can do beautiful things with computers with lots of data that look very, very nice and are almost completely incomprehensible. <laughs> so that would be true of a bad visualization. Um, and you know, there's a lot of bad visualizations out there, just as there's a lot of bad infographics. But I think there very much is a craft in this field. And if you do it wrong, you can get really bad results, just as there's a lot of poorly written stories out there. The whole data visualization trend worries me when it's done badly because what's happened is there have been a few very effective ones that have appeared widely around on blogs and everything and then everybody's sort of jumping in now and having a go and of course this is always a danger because the principles that we've always used for graphics Okay, that I wanted to show you that because I think it really shows the exact parallel between some of the techniques being used in research and how they're migrating into journalism and also some of the dilemmas like whether or not uh, this is illuminating new ideas or whether it's actually technique for technique's sake and so forth. And, um, but also it's very interesting if you, uh, I was just struck by how uh, Riesling uh, with his, in the first exhibit where he, he's showing you this data on health and I mean he's a spectacular performer and he had a narrative that, that really drove that data and I've, I've talked to so many people who've tried to use the software. The software he uses is op open source, it's available. And very most people cannot do the kinds of amazing <laughs> uh, entertainment design that he, that he did. So it's, it is an art, it's a craft even in the social sciences and also in journalism. Um, but it's, uh, but it's, it's changing the way, I mean now you can see in the journal, even from that, those short clips, you can see that that's becoming an, an important element of journalistic practice that, uh, and that the, it requires teams of journalists to work with. I mean, these people are parts of larger teams of a, of a new area of journalism. Usually when you think of new technology in journalism, you think of the sort of the new reporter who can go around with a laptop or uh, 
a tablet computer and, cam and mini cameras and so forth and do reporting in a new way. But this is a, this is a whole other dimension of, of uh, new technology and, and journalism. Um, for better or worse. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so I think some kind of uh, focused study of journalistic practices might be just as interesting and, and uh, useful as, as studies of of, uh, of social science practice. And we're only looking at journal at visualization. Visualization is just one really one aspect of, of the entire phase of research processes that are that are uh, uh, being transformed by using new computer technology.